All right. Hey guys. So in this short video, I want to talk about Sola Scriptura and why it's both insufficient and dangerous. This is based on some notes I drew up over a decade ago, um, but really nothing has changed in this regard. Uh, and everything here is essentially hundred percent true. And so the, the claim I want to give you is that Sola Scriptura fails on multiple, multiple fronts. And then we can actually see the fruits of this man-made and dangerous tradition in the fact that it's splintering and fractioning Christianity in a way that was never uh, part of the plan. Jesus prays that we'll all be one, confessing the same belief, the same faith, as though we have one mouth. The early church lived this practice for 1,500 years. Uh, they're really, you knew what the church believed and you knew who heretics were because heretics were the people who simply disagreed with the church. But nowadays, anybody can pull up the scripture and say, well, this is my reading of it, and this is my reading of it. And they come to competing and in, 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 um, incongruous uh, readings of scripture, right? And it's this reason there's a there's a really great ministry called the Coming Home Network. Um, it's been around for 20, 20 plus years at this point, probably. It's headed by a guy named Marcus Grody, who was himself a um, he was a I believe he was a Presbyterian. Don't quote me on that. Uh, pastor who, in the process of learning his faith and you know trying to become a better pastor for his his flock he started to realize there were some real inherent problems in what he believed and what he was teaching and you know that he, he couldn't even say for sure whether or not you know what he was teaching was absolutely true or not i mean there are just so many different issues and so many different problems and his investigation of scripture and tradition and history and the early church led him to the catholic church and now he runs this ministry called the coming home network which is for people who in general are coming to Catholicism from outside of the faith. But he says that, uh, and this is this is actually from an interview I heard a couple of years ago, so the number may even be higher. Um, but he says, by and large, they see between, I think it was like 10 and 20 Protestant pastors every single week contacting them because they're realizing the errors that they're teaching and the, the errors that they've inherited uh, due to this primary uh, hallmark of the Reformation. And the idea is sola scriptura. So Sola Scriptura makes the claim that what is necessary for a Christian to believe is in the Bible and that there is no other source necessary for Christian life. And on the face of it, it sounds like it makes sense, right? Um, it, it, if you have the Bible and it's in front of you and you know that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God, then it would make sense to say, well, you know, this is this is what we have, this, this text here. And this is what we're going to base everything on. And anything that's not in this text obviously isn't inspired in the same way. And so we're just not going to worry about that stuff, right? We're not going to look at it. And again, that makes sense on the face of it. However, it doesn't make sense in reality for a couple of different reasons. First off, the idea of Sola Scriptura is itself non-scriptural. Right. If, if you're going to make the claim that every single belief that we have should be stated in the Bible explicitly, that should be stated pretty explicitly in the Bible. <laughs> and it's not. There's not a single verse in Scripture that ever makes the claim that everything needs to be found in the Bible. Now, it speaks very highly of the Scriptures, right? Obviously. Now, it tells us they're the inspired Word of God. They're inerrant. They're useful for correction and rebuking and reproof and, and all these things, right? And that's fine. 
I have no problem with the scriptures. In fact, as a, as a Catholic, I, I believe in what I like to call prima scriptura. I think the scriptures are the highest. They're the only source we have of revelation from God. Um, even the church itself doesn't have revelation that it gives, but it, it is governed and protected by the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that when we talk about tradition down the road. Um, but sola scriptura is a claim that is never made in the Bible, so it fails its own test. It is non-scriptural, and so by its own analysis, it needs to be thrown out as an added-on man-made tradition. And of course, you can really see the fruit of this man-made tradition when you look at all of the different denominations that are out there. And I've heard numbers that estimate as high as thirty to 40,000 different Protestant denominations. And I think that those numbers are a little inflated, because I saw the original source for this and it said there were something like a hundred Catholic denominations and there aren't, there's only one. Uh, there are 23 other rites in the Catholic church, but they just have different liturgies. They all are under the Pope and all believe the same things, etc. Uh, so I'm willing to say that that number may be off by an, a magnitude of 10 or even a hundred, right? But even if there's, you know, not 30,000, but 3000 or not 3000, but 300, even if there's 300 different denominations teaching different things that all compete with each other. Isn't that a problem? Right? If scripture is all we need, and scripture interprets scripture as they say, why is there so much division? Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my aim, there am I in their midst. And for a long time, that was true. But nowadays, where two or three are gathered in his name, and they have a disagreement on scripture, there you have two different churches, right? That's a problem. So scripture never makes this claim. And what's interesting is you can actually tell that sola scriptura is itself um, impractical and uh, makes no sense because the scriptures never get you to the scriptures. <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. Um, one of the most popular videos I ever shot, it's uh, eight or nine years old at this point, probably about as old as uh, this document here. And it starts off with these little animated characters asking, how do you know that the book of Mark belongs in scripture? And it's a dialogue between two people. And, and on the one, the one guy keeps saying, well, I know it's in the Bible because it's in the Bible, right? <laughs> and so for our Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, if you're watching this, you have this assumption that the Bible just kind of descended out of heaven, right? And it came pre-bound uh, with 66 books in it, um, as opposed to the 73 that we Catholics have, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> um, but it just didn't happen, right? Um Every reference to the scriptures made in the New Testament, with the possible exception of Peter, uh, who seems to lump some of Paul's writings in with other scriptures in uh, one of his letters. Every other time that the scriptures are mentioned, they're almost entirely mentioning just the Old Testament scriptures. Um, so when Paul tells Timothy, you know, the scriptures that you've known since you were young, he's not speaking of the New Testament because there wasn't a New Testament. For the first at least 20 years of the church, there wasn't any documents circulating around. And even then they, they circulated solely by the end of, uh, you know, 80, 90 AD uh, with the death of the last apostle, you had you know, a series of collections of, of writings, you had hundreds of different writings uh, being circulated. Some of them were letters of Paul, some of them were the four gospels, and some of them were received by the church, which is to say by bishops who called themselves Catholic and celebrated the Eucharist and believed it was really the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, and all these other things. Um, <laughs> believed in apostolic succession, believed that if you couldn't trace your ordination back to one of the apostles, then you were a heretic. Um, you know, so these guys definitely accepted a number of books uh, right out because they just knew that they were they were um, acceptable. But 
the scriptures itself doesn't tell you this, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, as he's ascending into heaven, he doesn't shout out, hey, you guys, look look out for this thing. Here's a list of books. Here's 27 books. And as they get written, collect them and and, and put them in a, in, a, in a bound together copy, right? Uh, <laughs> Paul doesn't pen a table of contents. Neither does Peter or James or Mark or Luke or Matthew um, or Jude or, 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 or John. You know, none of them pen a table of contents. This table of contents came from somewhere. So the question is, where did it come from? And who had the authority to put that table there? Now, a lot of people, when I start pushing them on this, they just say, well, God wanted me to have a Bible. And so he protected it and made sure I had it. And I get that. And I'm not trying to make you doubt the Bible. Please understand that. But that's not in scripture. Okay. It's just not. And so people will say, well, you know, they had a Bible in Jesus' time. They knew what the scriptures were then. Well, you know what else? They had the scribes and the Pharisees, and they sat on the seat of Moses. And they had, they they protected the scriptures, which almost nobody had their own copy of the scriptures, by the way. In fact, it was almost a, a, a sin to take them out of the temple. They were so holy, they had to be, they had to remain in the temple. You couldn't even touch them with your hands. You had to have like a little stick, you know, to, to follow along with them. They touch them with the, the links of their tassels and whatnot uh, because they were so holy. And also because people just, most people couldn't read. <laughs> we'll come back to this idea in a minute, but most people couldn't read. They couldn't afford the parchment and everything else. In fact, that's, I'm, I'm giving away the, the punchline here because there's five big reasons why Sola Scriptura is purely impractical. But but literally the Sola Scriptura as a, as a concept can't get you to the scriptures. It just can't. And so you are relying on a tradition of men that tells you there's 27 books in the New Testament and either uh, 39 or 46 books in the Old Testament, depending upon uh, whether you have a Catholic Bible or a Protestant Bible. And hey, with that Catholic Bible, you get more books for the same price usually, so it's a good deal. <laughs> um, but the people who made that decision, they either made it fallibly or infallibly. And it was, uh, I've, I've mentioned this before on this channel, but uh, I, to, to this day, I, I credit, I think now the late uh, R.C. Sproul of Ligonier Ministries, he made me Catholic, uh, even though he's a reformed guy himself. And he did it because he had this quote and I read it and I, I don't know where I, I kept it for years. It was a piece of paper. I think he'd emailed out or mailed out. Um, and for a long time, you could find it online. I can't find it anymore. Eventually, I'll, I'll put a link to it down below if I can find it. But he basically said this. He says, our Catholic brothers and sisters believe they have an infallible list of infallible books. Our secular brothers and sisters believe that we have a fallible list of fallible books, right? So they obviously they don't think the scriptures are inspired and they don't think the list is inspired either. Whereas the Catholics think the, the books are inspired and also the list of the books is inspired. So it's inherent. And he says, we Protestants hold a tenuous middle ground where we believe we have a fallible list of infallible books. And I read that line and I was just, I was gobsmacked. <laughs> I could not believe that he would say that because if you have an, if you have a fallible list, meaning a list that could be wrong, could contain the wrong books, could be missing important books. Um, if you have a fallible list of infallible books, then you have a fallible list of fallible books for as much as you can assume. Right. And the example, here's an example. Um, let's talk about mushrooms. I've given this before as well, but if you know that every mushroom in the genus death cap, again, I don't know my mycology very well. I need to learn it before I give this analogy in the future. But if you knew that if, if a mushroom is in the genus death cap, then if you eat it, it will kill you. That's a good piece of knowledge to have. But if you can't subsequently answer the question, is this particular mushroom in the genus death cap? Then it doesn't really do you any good, right? You better not be eating that because you might be eating poison. 
right? And it's the same with scriptures. It doesn't do you any good. It's it's neat to know that all scripture, if it's scripture, is inspired by God, etc., right? God breathed, uh, as it says in in Timothy. Um, but if you can't subsequently answer the question definitively, is this scripture? Then it doesn't really do you any good to know whether this is scripture or not. And in the early church, actually in the, in the, in the Jewish era, there were multiple canons floating around. They didn't have a closed canon. Um, bear in mind, you know, the, the Sadducees, the ones who denied the resurrection and that Sadducee, <laughs> they, um, they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Um, they didn't accept anything beyond that, right? You had multiple different groups. You had the Essenes, you had the Pharisees, um, you had Jesus and his followers who used the Greek translation called the Septuagint. And that's a fascinating concept, by the way, because there's changes from the Hebrew into Greek that literally render different verses differently in the Septuagint with a different meaning. So again, um, like uh, the the passage from Isaiah that says a, a virgin shall conceive. It doesn't say that in Hebrew. It only says that in Greek. But when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he quotes the Greek version that says a partenos, uh, uh, a virgin shall bear a child. And so um, the fact that the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew to quote the Greek version that has this particular line tells us that this translation, the Septuagint, in fact, seems to have improved on the Hebrew scripture in some capacity. That is fascinating when you really stop to think about that. Utterly, utterly fascinating. Some of the changes are a lot less, you know, meaningful, but that's one that sticks out is just like bewildering, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely crazy. And so th there wasn't a set canon. It, it's simply a mistake to say that there was a set canon. Um, around, you know, zero AD at the time of Jesus, but there, there was a Greek binding of the books called the Septuagint. And that list is, uh, what the apostles used. They quote from it two thirds, at least of the quotations of the old Testament in the, uh, new Testament come directly from the Septuagint version, two out of three quotations, at least, uh, come from the Septuagint version. Um, and that contains the extra books that are in the Catholic Bible, books that are referenced in a, a few different places. For instance, the the Sadducees come to Jesus and they poke fun at him, uh, quoting the book of Tobit, which is a story of a woman who gets married to seven guys who die subsequently because of a demon killing her husbands. And, and they don't believe in the resurrection and they don't believe this book is inspired. So they come to Jesus with a challenge and they say, hey, you know, uh, what happens if the resurrection is real and this scenario takes place in heaven, you know, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Right. And that's a legitimate question. It really is a legitimate question. If you think about it, like they're not just being snarky, like is she going to be in some weird polyamorous relationship with seven brothers or what happens, you know, and then she dies and that brother marries another woman and then she dies and he marries another woman and then he dies and she marries another husband. Like you've got this really weird chain of polyamory in heaven. If, marriage lasts beyond this life. And of course, Jesus answers the question very clearly and says they're not given in marriage in the way in, in heaven, uh, in the way that they are in this life. So he answers their question, but they're bringing him a challenge from the book of Tobit that he accepts and that they don't. Um, the book of Revelation, uh, sorry, the book of Hebrews, um, Hebrews 11 has that, you know, great, it's like the hall of fame of the Old Testament. And every single incident that's listed in Hebrews uh, can be traced directly to someone in the Old Testament except for one that you can't find in the Protestant Old Testament. I think it's verse 27, but it speaks of people um, being tortured for the sake of a better resurrection. And you just simply cannot find in a Protestant Old Testament anybody being tortured for the sake of a better resurrection. But that's ripped directly from Maccabees, 2 Maccabees, uh, 
verse seven, I think it is, or chapter seven. And it's a series of, of brothers uh, who are one after it's a gruesome scene. It's actually kind of fun to read um, in hindsight, but it's kind of gruesome as well. And it's a series of brothers who each one is in turn put to death, their scalp, their tongues are ripped out. Like it's, you know, they're tortured and they make this claim that we know that in the resurrection, we will be given our bodies back. So whatever you do our bodies in this life, we don't care. Right. They are tortured um, and they refuse to run for the sake of a better resurrection that comes from second Maccabees. So the scriptures themselves quote, in, in various places, the, the Septuagint and also these these books that are in the Catholic scriptures. And it wasn't for 300, 400 years, um, as 389-ish, when we finally had a canon, the, the first list of books that the church put out. So for the first 400 years, there just wasn't a set list of books. You had a bunch of books that may have been scripture and some that were received very, very widely. Again, a lot of Paul's letters, um, some of Peter's, actually Second Peter was one that was in doubt. Um, ironically, one of the only books that makes the claim of being inspired, uh, the book of Revelation, where John is literally writing down the revelation given to him by Jesus, um, that one was was held in in doubt for a long time but also again you know i can accept you know the the writings of the apostles but mark wasn't an apostle luke was an apostle they, they journeyed with apostles they knew apostles in hebrews we don't know who wrote it you know there's lots of theories people suspect it might have been paul or it might have been luke writing for paul um or there you know there's a couple other options out there um but nobody knows right nobody knows who wrote hebrews why is that in your bible if we don't even know who wrote it Think about that for a little bit, like literally let, let that sink in because your immortal soul depends upon the answer to that question. Do you know the books that belong in the Bible, the new Testament, and the old, and if so, how, and it has to be from a source that's not in scripture because there is no actual table of contents in scripture. There just isn't. And you have to be okay with that. Lastly, again, soul scripture is just simply impractical. It was 1436, 39, whenever Gutenberg made his printing press and all of a sudden we could mass produce texts like never before. It was a, a revolution in the ability to disseminate knowledge that is really rivaled by nothing but the internet itself. Uh, the ability to to rapidly print things, whether pamphlets, uh, which is actually one of the reasons the the Reformation probably took off, is people could get into these pamphlet wars, um, sending you know tracts back and forth uh, to each other and, and, and rapidly printing them off, uh, etc. There are probably a few other reasons that were political as well, but uh, that's a big one. And uh, but but literally before this time, the the concept of having a Bible, having your own Bible, literally made no sense for ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all people. And here's why. First off, again, in a world without a printing press, uh, books were very, very rare, right? They just, they, 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 you had to be copied by hand. Uh, a book as big as the, as the Bible, right? Copied by hand could take 20,000 hours, according to some estimates, especially like the really nice, you know, fancy ornate ones. And if you're going to spend the time to do it, you might as well make it pretty, right? <laughs> uh, so books were very, very, very rare because they just weren't able to be mass produced. And they were also very hard to care for. Um, they weren't usually made on paper, though some were written on papyrus, but even if they were on uh, vellum or, or, or various skins, you know, those were expensive to produce. And even still, um, if, if they weren't kept 
in a, uh, a sp specific way, they would degrade over time. And so, you know, being, being, being very rare, very hard to find uh, and very, very hard to care for. It actually made them very expensive. Most people couldn't afford a Bible. Um, in fact, if, if you, if you could afford a Bible, you know, it probably wouldn't last. You'd probably cost you you know, two or three lifetimes worth of wages, at least to be able to afford one copy of it. And if you didn't have climate control, if you didn't live in a monastery, you know, with inner rooms that were protected, uh, more or less from the, you know, the extreme weather conditions or in, inside of a castle, um, your investment of multiple years or multiple lifetimes worth of wages would be gone in a generation or two. It simply wouldn't survive just sitting in most people's houses. Um, so being very rare, being very hard to care for, um, they tended to be very, very expensive as well. So these three things are enough to show the impracticality of Sola Scriptura, the idea that you should have your own Bible and read. Now, this is not to say that you shouldn't have your own Bible. In this day and age, in the age of the printing press, it is absolutely amazing. And I think everyone should have a Bible. In fact, most people don't know this. The Catholic Church actually uh, has an indulgence. Yes, we still have those for people who read a half an hour of scripture uh, per day. So the church actually encourages you to sit down and read scripture. But again, um, so books were very rare, very hard to care for, very expensive. And there was no canon, um, you know, for the first 380 years or whatever, right there, there wasn't a set list of books. And so especially if you lived in, you know, 200 AD or 300 AD, you didn't know what books even should have been in your Bible, right? You didn't, you didn't, you, you might've said, Hey, I want a copy of that gospel, uh, written by Luke, you know, or a gospel, that gospel written by Matthew. Again, there were some texts that were circulated, but even a book like that would have cost you a lot of money. Um, and you wouldn't be able to care for it very easily for very long. Um, but again, if you don't know what books belong in your Bible, if you have a fallible list of, of books, then, you know, why don't you include the letters of Clement, uh, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, uh, you know, all these other um, letters that are not, were ruled by the church to not be uh, considered uh, canonical, uh, to not be considered inspired, but nevertheless were widely received in the church and contain no problematic theology. Again, Ignatius of Antioch, um, Clement of Rome, these guys were, were successors of Peter. Right. They were they were ordained by St. Peter himself and were writing in the time uh, of Peter and the other apostles still being alive. In fact, um, there's a there's a set of writings that suggest that Ignatius uh, of Antioch uh, had written to John while he was still alive, as well as possibly to the Virgin Mary. Um, and he wrote to John in the era when there were only three Gospels, Mark, Matthew and Luke. Um, and asked him to write uh, a gospel that would explain that Jesus was fully God and fully man, because there are already uh, heretical sects in the early church going around and, and teaching things that simply uh, were problematic, even though they weren't unscriptural at the time, because there was no scripture on this issue. But the church protected the teaching from the very, very beginning, which is why St. Paul can tell you to hold firm to the traditions that were passed on or the teachings that were passed on, whether they were passed on in a letter or orally, as he says in Second Thessalonians. So again, the other problem, of course, um, other than being expensive and rare and hard to find, and they're not being a canon. And also, you know, good luck finding one that was even in your language, assuming you could find all the other things. But chances are, again, like 99% of all society, you were probably illiterate. 
Think about that. Like literally let that sit in, right? We live in an era. We live in a time today when most people can read. Um, it's been estimated about 70% of the world is literate, um, according to certain rates. A hundred years ago, it was pushing maybe 30%. A thousand years ago, it's doubtful that even 5% of people could read. And 2000 years ago, the number was probably the same. You know, for most of human history, most people had no need of being able to read beyond maybe understanding a few pictographs or, or simple images or something like that. People relied exclusively on the church for instruction in the faith. And that's why the church preserved the scriptures and read them in the mass for 2000 years. Okay. So the idea of sola scriptura doesn't make sense. It fails its own test. It's not in the scriptures. It can't justify giving you the scriptures, which rely on an extra biblical tradition in order to even know what books belong in it. And that extra biblical tradition is either fallible, in which case you don't have a Bible, you have a list of good spirits we're reading, or it's infallible, in which case it was given to you by a church which called itself Catholic, uh, had succession from the apostles, believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, had bishops and priests and deacons and all that stuff, called itself Catholic, right? And that church either was fallible or infallible. And if it was infallible, then you need to be in that church because that's the church that Jesus Christ founded on the apostles. And if it was fallible, you don't got much. Anyway, I hope that this makes sense. Again, I'm not trying to shake your faith in Scripture. In fact, at the end of the day, I'm trying to deepen your faith in Scripture because you need to know just how firm of a foundation you have for believing in your Scriptures. But it requires the church which existed before the Scriptures were written, especially before the New Testament Scriptures were written. And that same church is the church that gave us the canon, both of the Old Testament and the New. And from the very first canons on, they were identical to the Catholic canon. Gutenberg's first Bible, printed about 100 years before Luther's Reformation, had those books in them just fine, right? It's, it's the authority of the church that tells you the books that belong in Scripture. Uh, St. Jerome famously made a translation called the Vulgate, which literally means the, the, the vulgar language. It was the common language. Um, he made a translation into Latin so that people could have better access to the scriptures in the in the fourth, fifth century. And at one point, in order to do this, he had to go to the, there weren't just, you know, schools, there weren't universities floating around. So you actually had to go to the Holy Land and find some rabbis who were willing to teach you uh, Hebrew. And he noticed as he was doing this, that they didn't include some books that we did include the books that were from the from the Septuagint. And he initially, uh, you know, pointed out, said, hey, there's a discrepancy here. These Jews don't include these certain texts. There's these seven books here. Um, there is, um, you know, portions of, Des uh, of Daniel, portions of Esther, um, and, and they're not in the, in the Hebrew canon. Is this a problem? And some people have latched onto that and said, look, Jerome was pointing out problems in the canon. No, he wasn't. In fact, he writes a letter um, down the road and he actually says, you know, I am. I have nothing to be blamed for um, relating the objections that they, the Jewish people, were want to raise against these books. Um, he cites a number of the the portions of Daniel um, in this letter, and he says, "You know what? What error have I committed if I have deferred to the judgment of the church? Because that's literally what you do. The church is, is what we see in Scripture that is given by Jesus, uh, given the binding and loosing authority, built on the apostles. They pass on these offices. Uh, the first thing they do in 
in Acts 1 is they appoint a successor to Judas, saying another must take his office. And the word there in Greek for office is episcopate. And literally, that's the same thing. Timothy and Titus, they're bishops in the church. They're episcopoi, episcopate holders. That's literally what the word means is, is in Greek, it's overseers. They're overseers in the church. This was an office that was passed on. And it was passed on and passed on and passed on. And the church grew. And it grew and it grew like a mustard seed grows into a mustard plant, right? And, uh, you know, the, the plant eventually doesn't resemble the the seed a whole lot but it's the exact same thing just bigger over time i hope this made sense i know this can be a a, a tricky issue and it's an era uh an area that really is probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks for catholics and protestants to come together but again bear in mind that starting from the premise of sola scriptura we now have thousands of different denominations, all teaching competing things, and all claiming that scripture is the highest authority. At the end of the day, uh, I'm trying to remember who said this line, but at the end of the day, everybody has a pope. <laughs> at the end of the day, everybody has uh, uh, an arbiter for what the scripture means. And you either have the church that Jesus gave us that's protected the teaching and hasn't changed a single doctrine in 2000 years, or you have Pastor Jim Pastor Fred doing his best to understand the scriptures, but doing it broken from the continuity of Jesus and the apostles. I hope that makes sense. This is a big issue. This is the issue that made me Catholic. Um, there are other issues as well. Obviously, I think that the Catholic Church is very clearly the visible church Jesus established in scripture. Uh, but this is a big, big, big issue. So please, all I ask is that at the end of this video, you pray about this and say, Lord, I want to know the truth, whatever it is. I, you know, I, I don't want to be Catholic. Maybe I didn't want to be Catholic, um, but I'm willing to follow your truth wherever it leads. I believe the scriptures are your inspired word of God. You're your inspired word. You're an errant word, um, though I maybe don't fully understand how I got them. Help me to understand. Lead me into all truth. And that's it. God will do the rest. God love you.